go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So we're going to be wrapping up our series on the five solas or the five mantras of the Reformation. So if I could read this drape behind me again. So you're saved from sin and death by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. So we're going to go over according to Scripture alone, or on the basis of Scripture alone. So when we talk about the alones, that means that the Roman Catholic Church taught something different, which is why we needed to separate from them. So if we're talking Scripture alone, what the Roman Catholics taught was that it was Scripture plus the Church. So what was going on here was an issue of authority. Okay, So what carries more weight in terms of what the church will do? The Roman Catholic Church is teaching that, yes, Scripture is authoritative, but not just Scripture alone, but Scripture plus the church. They are equal in authority. Okay, They are equal in authority. Um, but there's a, there's a problem with that idea. Okay? So when you have equal authority in that sense, um, what happens when they disagree? Right? So you have a pope who's a man who's in charge of the church. What happens if the pope teaches something contrary to the Bible? Right? Or he declares something that's contrary to the Bible. Who wins at that point? Right? And ultimately what happened functionally in the Roman Catholic Church was that the pope would win. So even though they would say, yes, Scripture is authoritative, if the Pope would say something contrary to what Scripture taught, then they would go with what the Pope taught. So in reality, it wasn't Scripture plus the church. It was more like the church was equal with Scripture, but then they also had the edge over Scripture. And this goes for any equal authority. You can fight amongst yourselves as equals, but ultimately one has to win. Right, so if I want to go to Burger King and Royce, my triplet, right, one of my triplets wants to go to King Taco, at the end of the day, we're either going to go to Burger King or King Taco. I can't go to both in that sense if we're conflicting with one another. You're going to choose one. And the reformers understood this. They, they understood it because they're reading the Bible and they're reading things that are contradicting what the Pope is teaching. And they're looking at this book and they're saying, clearly something's wrong here. One has to give out for the other. So they're saying that, no, Scripture is the final authority. But this wasn't a new idea. It didn't start in the 1500s. It actually goes all the way back to Paul. All right, so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Read with me. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, Apollos, for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. The purpose of this, uh, the purpose is that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. Okay, so there's a saying that's happening in the early church that people know of, that, that is common, like kind of one of those pithy statements that you throw around frequently. And that phrase is what, according to verse 6? Yeah, nothing beyond what is written. 
Okay, so the early church taught that you're not supposed to go beyond what's written. And what is the thing that's written? Yeah, the Bible. The Bible is what's written. And the purpose here, according to verse 6, is so that you, so that none of you will be arrogant, favoring one person over another. So this is a really odd idea that you're not supposed to go beyond what is written because you're not supposed to be prideful. What does that mean? How do those dots connect there? What does pride and favoritism have to do with the Bible? Okay, What does what pride and favoritism have to do with the Bible? Well, Paul goes on to explain in verse 7. Read with me. For who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If, in fact, you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Okay, so, so his response is that the purpose of this, the reason why you're not supposed to go beyond what is written, is so that you would not be prideful and so that you wouldn't have favoritism. And the reason is because you would not have anything that you did not receive. So Paul's saying that we didn't receive anything. So if we didn't receive anything from God, if we didn't receive things as a gift, then we would have nothing. Okay? So let me rephrase that in a way that might be a little bit clearer. If you only have because you received, because you received things, then that means that you did not achieve anything. Okay? So your kids might get a really cool Lightning McQueen toy for Christmas. They did not achieve that toy. Okay? They didn't work. They didn't go out for a nine-to-five in order to earn that Lightning McQueen toy. They received it. Okay? They received it. And when you don't recognize what you've received, if you don't recognize that as a gift, then you start to treat it like you own it. Right? Like it's mine. So, like... If a parent's disciplining their child and they take away that Lightning McQueen toy, they tend not to be very happy. Because why? It's, it's mine. How dare you touch what's mine? It's mine. And because of that, if you think that you have achieved, then you might begin to think, and this is the next step. So you go from receiving, you forget that you received, and you begin to think that you achieved. And once you think that you've achieved, you begin to think that you have some inherent worth to you. Okay, so, so the reason why I'm angry that you took my Lightning McQueen toy is because it's mine, and how dare you infringe on me? Do you have any idea who I am? King of the five-year-olds, right? So you cannot take something from me because we have some inherent worth, and we live our entire lives admiring and following that idea. Okay, what do I mean by that? Um, well, for example, we love underdog stories, don't we? Start from the bottom, now we hear. Right? Kurt Warner, as a grocery clerk, turned Super Bowl football star. Go Rams. Right? Um, dramatic stories about druggies getting their lives together and becoming successful. Why do we get so enraptured in those stories? It's because you have guys that are pulling themselves together and achieving things. 
right? That are achieving some inherent status or worth because they believe in themselves. And they get to where they need to go by hustling, by putting hard work, grit, determination to get to where they are. But the flip side is that if you receive things as a gift, there's nothing inherently glorious about it. You get no props for receiving things as a gift. Okay, so do you know why I know that to be true? Because you've never given someone a trophy for a Christmas gift. Right? You've never given a gold Olympic medal to Justin, let's say here, right? And I get, hey man, for Christmas, I got you a sick Olympic medal. It's going to be as though you ran it and you beat Hussein Bolt. And we're going to put it in the records, but this is a gift to you. Nobody is going to admire that. Nobody is going to think that Justin has any inherent worth for receiving a gold Olympic medal. There's nothing inherently valuable about that. So Paul asks, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Because this is a lie that we begin to believe if we don't recognize that we've received everything from Christ is that you begin to think that you have some inherent worth. I'm so godly, or I'm so wise, or I did this, or I did that. And what Paul is trying to remind the Corinthian church here is that you have nothing inherently within yourself. You received everything as a gift. So, just to connect this here to Scripture, if Jesus, almighty, glorious, authoritative God, gives us His inheritance, and through His inheritance, through the grace that we've received, He gives us His almighty, glorious, authoritative Word, then who are we to say that we don't need it? Who are we to say that we can dismiss it? That's why Paul is writing here, do not Go beyond what is written. Because what ultimately is the authority in the church? The Bible. In other words, you can have pastors that are very eccentric or or charismatic, that draw huge crowds that are very articulate in their thinking. They seem so wise, they're almost like Google in the flesh, right? And they just have answers for everything. And even they have to submit to this book. William Tyndale, one of the people who was martyred for trying to translate the Bible into English, wrote that his goal in translating the Bible into English was so that one day the boy at the farmer's plow would know more about the truths of God than the Pope and the entire Vatican. So, to get what he's saying there. He's saying that everyone is submitting to this text. And when you have this Bible, you have the authority of God because no one is above this book. Okay, so I might have a disagreement with Justin, but the reason why, if we're having some sin discussion or even a wisdom discussion within the church, the reason why one should be preferred over the other is not because one is better. Isn't because I have some inherent worth over Justin, but because we're both submitting to the text, and the text will dictate what the church should do. Okay? So how does that practically work itself out? How do you go not beyond what is written in the church? Very quickly, I'll just go over a couple different examples of how that works out in the church. So when teaching, 
Okay, when you're teaching, you should prefer the Bible over rhymes. Okay, Bible over rhymes. So this is a common one that I might hear pretty much beyond in all churches, especially after oceans came out. So the quote, like stepping out into the water, right? You'll you'll hear that frequently. Like step out into the water, step out in faith, do what Jesus tells you to do. And that's a good thing. Right? That that that's a biblical truth that's in the gospels, right? There's a story, Peter actually steps out into the water. You absolutely amen, you should do that. But if you unhinge yourself from that and do things like what I heard the other day on Facebook from a, from a preacher, speaker, um, she's saying, do you step out in the water in your life? They start giving all these different random examples of like giving a Coke to a homeless person, even though she didn't share the gospel with a homeless person because she was stepping out into the water. Or um, being bold in your job and audacious in your job and pursuing greatness because you're stepping out into the water. Or, or being courageous in your relationships with other people and really making sure that they know that you are great because Christ made you great and you are supposed to step out into the water. And people are standing up and clapping and whooping and hollering. And what did that person just do? They took a rhyme and they just beat it into your head without using the Bible. Without letting her authority be found in the Bible. And we need to be aware of those things. It's okay to have statements that help you remember things. But make sure you know where from the Bible it's from. Make sure you know where from the Bible it's from. That's why it's important that we sing biblical songs. Because you might think that's harmless, but the words that you sing actually teach you things. If you don't know where it is in Scripture, then you might be believing something that's not true. When rebuking. You should pick the Bible over pet peeves. Okay, When you're rebuking, you should pick the Bible over pet peeves. It's really easy to mix the two. Especially for me, because there's a lot of things that annoy me. Right? Um, but when I'm dealing with other Christians in the faith, and I want to correct them, I have to make sure that I understand what's a preference and what's a sin issue. Right? If someone's really, like, let's say, um, quirky, and for me, that means in my heart, if I'm translating it honestly, annoying. Um, I can't just address that and say, you are stepping on my toes, therefore you must do what I say. Right? I can't just look at someone and say, like, shut up. That's not a good thing for me to do. Now, if someone's sinning, and I can point that to the Bible, then I have every obligation and, and reason to do so. But if I'm rebuking, and I'm rebuking for a pet peeve, then my disposition has to be way different than if it was a sin issue as clear in the text. Right? Because if I'm rebuking someone else, I'm not rebuking them because I'm somebody. Right? So PJ, if he corrects someone else, he's not correcting them because he's the pastor. As much as he is as his fellow brother in Christ. You'll be rebuking someone because you're both mutually submitting to the text. It's not one person correcting the other person. It's not the same thing as like a parent correcting a child. There's a clear authority relationship there. But it's different when both of you are submitting to the text. That means you're being willing to be corrected and you're correcting someone else. That means that when you're rebuking someone of sin, you better have a Bible verse. That means if you're receiving correction, be open to the Bible. If someone doesn't bring up the Bible to you, 
and, and you feel unclear, well, don't just dismiss what they say, but ask them and investigate the text together. Okay? When living, you should have Bible over your preferences. Okay? Over your preferences. You should have the Bible over your preferences. So, this kind of falls more in the wisdom category, but when you're thinking about your life and decisions that you have to make, if the Bible is clear in terms of what you need to do in obedience, you need to let the Bible supersede your preferences. Right? Now, in issues of wisdom where things may be less clear, you need other people to investigate with you, not to just figure out what makes the most pragmatic sense, but trying to make clear what the Bible says and how it can more directly apply to your life. Does that make sense? So when you're interacting with other people trying to make big decisions in your life, it's less about what makes the most sense pragmatically. Even though that is a part of it, it should be part of what is the Bible telling me to do. How is scripture directing me in this way? What are some principles from the Bible and what's teaching that's helping direct my thoughts in terms of what I should be doing? Okay. And when churching, I, I had to turn church into a verb, right? Um, that it should be the Bible over tradition. It should be the Bible over tradition. Okay, so here's the thing. There are a lot of great, admirable people today. And we can, we can critique the Pope and say, you know, like, don't listen to the Pope, listen to the Bible. And most of us would just say yes and amen. But what we need to understand beyond that is that we need to have the Bible over everyone. And everything. That means the Bible over John MacArthur. That means the Bible over John Piper. That means the Bible over P.J. Tobian. Now, thankfully, most of the time those two things don't contradict. But when you have a faithful Bible teacher or a faithful authority that's consistent in giving the Bible, you can begin to mix the two together. Right? So you'll start to think like, oh, I could trust P.J. because P.J.'s P.J. No, you're supposed to trust PJ because what he's teaching from the Bible is true. So you have to be able to evaluate. Because here's what happens. Um, if the Bible isn't central, then tradition will be. And when tradition becomes central, you become inherently man-centric. Okay? The moment that you remove authority from God or his word, it turns to yourself. So haven't you ever heard someone say, like, oh, we can't do what the Bible says. That's just not practical. Or that's just not reasonable for me in my situation. Or you might start to think we have to have blue carpets in the auditorium. Because that's the way that it's always been. That's the way it needs to be. And what happens is that habits crust over and they become tradition. And once it becomes tradition and that begins to bear weight, it becomes law. Does that make sense? And that's what happened with the Catholic Church. There was... There was traditions that began over the course of time to crust over and become law. So, so this is part of the reason why I think it's a good idea to end with Scripture alone, which is that when you have a book like this, when you have the Bible, and it has clear words and clear things that it's saying, this will always be a consistent authority and standard to weigh everything upon. Okay? It will always be a clear, authoritative standard to weigh everything upon. Okay? So you might hear people today saying things like the Bible can't apply in today's culture. Right? Or times are different. It's not the 50s anymore. 
right? Or it's not the 1800s anymore. Or it's not the 1600s anymore. And believe me, that statement has come up time and time again in history. And every single time, it did not go well. Right? So, so let me try to explain it in this way. The Bible has some very clear things that we are to obey. Okay? Those things are called the elements of worship. So things like the word, things like singing, praying, fellowshipping together. Those are all really basic things that we can all agree on, right? Now, on the flip end, culture might look different based on the time, based on location, based on those things. Okay, so get it? You have the elements here, the basic things, reading, singing, praying, fellowshipping, etc., etc. And then you have the way that it forms itself out. So in BBC, that would look like Sunday morning gathering. Sunday evening prayer service, one-on-one discipleship reading, right? And what happens is, if you continue to have this as your standard, the Bible as your standard, as culture begins to change, this doesn't change, but the way that expresses itself begins to change, okay? So you can have acoustic guitars when you sing, even though acoustic guitars are, are a more modern instrument, Because the way that it expresses itself in the form is different. You don't have to have an organ every single time. Or you have to have musicless hymns every single time. Or you have to have a piano. Or, get it, someone a hundred years from now might say you have to have an electric guitar. And those things are not necessarily the case. And so the way that the reformers tried to explain this in the centuries afterwards is this phrase, semper reformanda. Semper reformanda. What do we mean by that? It means always reforming. Okay, so it means that the church is supposed to be dynamic and fluid in that it can always adapt but keep the same course. Okay, so because it keeps the same standard, it can constantly shift and adapt to what's necessary. So, so how can I think of this? The best analogy I can think of this before I close is music. Okay, is music. So in a music, it, for those of you who aren't musicians, I'm sorry. Right? Um, but in music, you have something called scales, right? Scales. So it will be seven notes that kind of work together in harmony with one another, right? So you can use those chords together and create beautiful noises and sounds. But every single day, there's new kinds of music that comes out, Right? But all of them are following the same rules. That's what happens when you have scripture as your authority. Is that the way that it expresses itself could look different. But you're still in the same major scale. Does that make sense? So you're still going back to the text. But when you try to divert from the text. Or go against the rules that are set for you. In the name of freedom. What you actually cause is chaos. It causes dissonance. It doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why we need to have scripture as our authority. What, what the reformers were doing was that they were looking at the church, seeing the dissonance, seeing random notes that did not belong there, and they wanted to bring correction to it. Right? That means for us, that means for every future generation of Christians, we need to submit ourselves to this book and trust this book enough that even if tradition or what's common in our society or in our environment might look contrary to this book, that we need to have confidence in this to stand up and correct it. Right? To correct culture. Not correct the Bible. Correct the culture. Right? Use the Bible as means of weighing it and correcting it. 
Okay, so that's scripture alone. Um, let me pray, and then we can go on with our night. Lord, thank you for the Bible that you've given us. Help us to have confidence in it and to not go beyond what is written. Thank you for the word that you've given us. Thank you that you didn't leave us to try to figure things out with our own human wisdom, but you've given us your spirit and you've given us your word. Help us to have the humility to submit to it, to have the confidence and the boldness to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.